Martin was the loudest worshipper in the youth group that I joined when I was a teenager. Singing, shouting, weeping, Martin did it the most. And he was going to be a doctor, and he was going to move to Africa, and he was going to serve Jesus. But when he was 16, he didn't get the grades he needed for the subjects that he wanted in order to become a doctor. And it just so happened that kind of around that time, he began to find other things to do rather than be at church. Paul and Sarah led the student small group I attended at university. They opened their home to us every week. They challenged us about how to follow Jesus with our whole lives. They were involved in the local community, running kids clubs. A couple of weeks ago, Paul tells Sarah he was leaving her and their three daughters. Nick was a youth leader at a big church had a big youth group, and he was involved in a national youth event around the same time uh, that I was. He was highly gifted. He abounded in enthusiasm, and he ran a part of the event that served thousands of young people every year. A little while ago, I asked a mutual friend uh, what Nick was up to now, because I just hadn't seen him for years. And they replied, sadly, that he, he just wanted to toned things down, he'd found somewhere quieter to live and just wasn't involved in things like that anymore. What happened to these guys? How did people who seemed so passionate for God end up seeming not to care about him at all? How did people who would have actively warned against doing these kind of things end up doing them? We're going to look at that today. That's my concern for us today. One of the images that the Bible uses to describe Christianity is walking. It's not very spectacular, but it's very important if you want to get anywhere. All the way back in the beginning, uh, we're told that God walked in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. The same phrase is then used to describe godly people like Enoch and Noah. We're told they walked with God. It's then part of what God commands Abraham to do. He says, walk before me and be blameless. Much later, when Jesus called people to him, he called them to follow him, to literally walk after him. And when some of of them didn't like what he was saying, John reports in his gospel, many of Jesus' disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. This uh, rejection was something that the Apostle Paul also experienced. And his, in his letters to Timothy, which we've been studying for the past few months, Paul often uses the walking metaphor to explain his concerns about this. At one point he says, certain persons have wandered away. Another time he says, some have swerved from the faith. For a time is coming, he says again later, when people will not endure sound teaching, but will wander off into myths. Even friends of his, people he'd known personally, he says, Demas, in love with the present world, has deserted me. And the passage we're going to be looking at today deals with this as well. It doesn't use exactly the same language, but it's the same idea. And it's 2 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to read pretty much all of it, starting in verse 1. But understand this. Paul says to Timothy, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, 
lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its powers. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium and at Lystra which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. There's a lot in there. I just want to focus in on one particular part of it, but before we do that, I'm just going to go through the whole thing to give you a feel of what Paul is saying. He talks about the last days. And when we think the Bible's talking about the last days, we imagine red skies and sulfur falling to the earth and terrible governments and all those kind of things. Obviously, we don't have any of those things yet. Um, But actually, when the Bible talks about the last days... It basically means everything between the resurrection of Jesus and his return. So we are living in the last days, just as the people in the New Testament were living in the last days. One proof of this is what Paul goes on to tell us about certain people when he describes to us people living in, well, frankly, how people live now. He describes those 19 terrible characteristics. And then he tells Timothy to avoid people like that. Now, this could sound like uh, you know, an instruction to form a monastery. It's like, you're a really good guy, Timothy, so hide away from all the bad guys. Hide away from the whole world. That's not Paul's style. That's not what Paul ever did. Paul kept going into the world. The people he's talking about avoiding are those who are Christians or who claim to be Christians, but who are living in those ways that he's just described. He says they have an appearance of godliness. He says they look like they're Christians. Maybe they are Christians, They're living that way. Don't go anywhere near them. One of the reasons to avoid them, he says, is because from among people like that, there are some who trap others with their false teaching. They're persuading other Christians to believe things that aren't true and do things that aren't right. And Paul's aware in the church of Ephesus, he started that church and he was profoundly connected to them. And that's where Timothy is now. Paul knows there are some women in that church who are particularly susceptible to these kind of guys. They're unhappy in their lives. They're isolated. They're often tempted. So they're easy prey for these men who promise knowledge but never give the life-changing power of Jesus. 
And as Paul's thinking about these guys, he uh, compares them to Janus and Jambres. Uh, These are the names uh, given in Jewish legend uh, to uh, magicians in Egypt who opposed Moses when he was demonstrating God's mighty power to Pharaoh. So if you've ever watched The Prince of Egypt or read Exodus, there are magicians who are opposed to Moses, and these guys were given the names later on, Janus and Jambres. They started trying to oppose Moses. They soon realized that Moses and Moses' God were way out of their league. God won a mighty victory over them. And Paul says that's exactly what's going to happen in Ephesus as well. In fact, that's already what happened in Ephesus. Because when you read in Acts 19, Paul goes to Ephesus, preaches the gospel, and does miraculous things. God does incredible signs through him. And so Luke records... Many of those who are now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So what Paul is saying to Timothy is that Janus and Jambres' example was a precursor of what then happened in Ephesus and what is the fate of all false teachers Sooner or later, they will be proved false, and those who have stayed faithful to God will be vindicated. With this great news in mind, uh, Paul uh, finishes his warning section with a recommissioning of Timothy. He says, this being the case, Timothy, keep going. Don't forget it's going to be hard. Yet another Paul reality check as he describes some of the awful things he's gone through. And say, but Timothy, you'll stay faithful if you take hold of what God's given you. Paul's example, the way of life he's learned, and the truth of God's word, uh, which Nat explained to us uh, really well last week. So that's, that's the whole passage. Now I want to focus in. I want to focus in on the fact that this terrible list that Paul describes, whereas you're reading it, you think, oh my goodness, that's terrible. It could be a description of any of us, whether we're Christian or not. For the Christians here, This would amount to using the image of walking uh, that we're reminding ourselves of. This is like, this is what wandering off ends up like. Now, the the cumulative power of this list is such that you would think, that's awful, I'd never end up there, I'd never be that kind of person. But if you were to go through each of the items, and don't worry, we're not going to now, but if you were to go through each of those items and you thought about yourself, you gave yourself a score of naught. If nothing like that has ever tempted you ever, a score of one, if you think, yeah, I can be a bit like that sometimes. And a score of two, if you're like, there, this is actually an ongoing challenge for me. I think we'd probably end up with some pretty high scores in here. And certainly no one would have zero. If you've ever had a crack in the windscreen of your car, you understand what this is all about. Because it might not be a very big crack in the windscreen, but when Autoglass see it, they get pretty serious about it. (laughs) And there are two reasons for that. One of them is they want your money. But the second reason is they know that small imperfections can become dangerous disasters. And that's what life's like. And so when we read that list and think, oh, awful, no way, I'm never going to get that kind of mess. It never begins like that. It always starts small. And so this is a warning to us. So I want us to take that warning, take heed of it, and work out how not to be 
caught up in it. And I was thinking, how do I describe this? How do I describe how this happens? How do we go from the small chip of glass to a wrecked windscreen? How, how do we go from passionate about God to nowhere near him? I was thinking about how uh, my friend Tom and I got kind of slightly lost up a mountain last summer because as we climbed it, as we went up, cloud came down. And by the time we were at the top, there was nothing but cloud. And when we tried to retrace our steps back, we got lost pretty quickly and we realized that because then there was kind of like the edge of the mountain that hadn't been there before that we were like peering over thinking we definitely didn't come up that very steep slope. And thankfully he had a fitness tracker on his phone and it showed us that on our map we just wandered all over the place and we just got lost. I thought about how a bunch of friends of mine were once getting a ferry uh, from uh, mainland Scotland out to the Outer Hebrides and just the raging winter seas would not let them get there for many more hours than they anticipated. And those would be legitimate images. There's times of confusion. We just don't know what's going on. There's times of opposition when we're trying to get forward and there's something going against us. But I don't think that's what Paul's talking about here. I don't think that's what he thinks the issue is for these people. The list of sins that he gives don't have, I don't think, a a strict order. But look how they start and look how they end. People, he says, will be lovers of self. And he finishes by saying, they'll be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And this is the key to understanding what happens and what is happening when we are being tempted to wander away. When Jesus described people turning away from him, the phrase he used in Matthew 24 was, the love of many will grow cold. That's how Jesus understands it. And in the book of Revelation, Jesus speaks to the same church, actually, that Paul and Timothy were concerned with, but he speaks to them like 20 or 30 years later. And so he says to the Ephesian church, it's fascinating, he says, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. So Paul was right twice over. He said to them, if you resist these false teachers, they will eventually have to clear off. And they had. But he also says to them, a lack of love for God will be your undoing. And 20 or 30 years later, Jesus is saying to that church, that's exactly what's happening. If you're not convinced that what we love is the root of our problems, just consider the last time you saw an advert on TV that relied solely on facts. There just aren't any. People in marketing are experts in human behavior. They know what we're like and they know how we work. And they know that emotion triumphs reason nearly every time. The psychologist Jonathan Haidt compares our reasoning brain to the rider of an elephant, and the elephant is our emotions. And there are times when the rider thinks they're in charge, but if there's a disagreement between the 10-stone rider and the 6-ton elephant about which direction they're going in, it's the elephant who's going to win the conversation. And so adverts tell us stories. They give us a vision of the good life, and they then associate their product with it, knowing that we are drawn by our desires more than anything else. Why else 
would coffee shops be so keen to tell us about their coffee's authenticity or how it will make us happy when it is in fact a flavoured hot drink? Why do I find it so hard to come up with convincing answers when I want to buy some new piece of technology? And Deb says to me, why? If you've experienced that, you're like, yes, this thing, I'm going to get this thing, this is going to be great. And then someone else says to you, why? And you thought, well, apart from the fact that I want it, I don't know, because these things cast their spell on us. They, they appeal to a, a kind of, we, we might, and some of us can, come up with a list of pretty convincing sounding reasons for this, but the reason we've come up with those reasons is because our emotion is saying, let's go there. This is an exploitation of God's good design. We were made by him to love him and to love those around us. That's how we were designed by him to be. We're meant to be motivated by good desires and to gravitate towards what's right. This isn't a failure of intellect or rationality. God made us like this. But this capacity and drive to love is so easily turned elsewhere. In our culture, it's primarily in on ourselves. Other cultures, and uh, for certain people, it would be different. There would be a thing that that is what your affection goes towards. And when that ha- begins to happen, we start to act in the ways that Paul described to Timothy. We value, we love things other than God, and so we wander off from the path that we seem to be taking, and we go towards those other things instead. I've, I've noticed this in play when I'm uh, having discussions with people and they've said they want to meet up with me and talk about a big decision uh, that they're facing. And some will come to me genuinely unsure of what to do, honestly wanting to know, what does it look like to follow Jesus in this situation? Does it mean I go this way or does it mean I go that way? How do I do this? Others have really already made the decision and want me to agree. It's really hard to persuade people in that second category if I disagree with their conclusion it's really hard to persuade them to change their mind because it's not really their mind that's at stake. Their desire, their affection is already fixed in a certain direction and very few people actively fight against what they want. And so they say, I know this is right. I know this is what God wants. And if I was to say to them, why? It can be tricky to answer it. The elephant has been marching in a certain direction for actually quite a while. We've only just noticed. So sometimes I think, man, I'd love to have talked with you about this decision like weeks or months ago when it started as a germ, kind of seed in you. I'd love to have been there at the beginning and to have had this chat and it feels like we're a long way on. Actually, the beginning wasn't the beginning. People's hearts and inclinations were already going in a certain direction and this is just the issue that's brought that up. For example, you might be attracted to Christianity Because people like me tell you that it will make you happy and more peaceful. And you really like those things. Someone says, hey, here's something that will make you happy and more peaceful. You're like, yes, please. And it's true. God is the source of all happiness. God is the source of all peace. Those things will happen. But the danger of that is that what you desire is to be peaceful and happy. Rather than God. God is the means to the end of peace and happiness. So, but you don't know that. It just sounds attractive. It's all in one thing. So you might make a commitment to Jesus. But when something happens that makes you unhappy or stressed, 
you will conclude that either God has let you down or that it can't be God's will, whatever that thing is. And so if you're faced with two options, and one is stressful and unhappy and one is lovely, you think, well, it's clearly the lovely option is what, God, what I'm called to do. If your desire is to follow God, then you'll do so through unhappy and stressful times as well, making decisions that are hard but obedient to the truth because what you're trying to do is follow Jesus. And he's the one who your affections are pointed towards. But if what you desire is simply to be happy and peaceful, when hard times come, you'll try something else instead. Christianity tried it, didn't really work out for me. Because it didn't do what you wanted. Your direction wasn't actually towards God. And so the question each of us must ask, and it's a serious question, it's an important question, what or who do you love? What or who do you want? Now, how do we come to an answer to that question? This could then, the rest of this preach could just very quickly become, descend into um, uh, you know, navel-gazing, understanding ourselves, knowing what we like. What, there's a place for that. But I think there's something much more helpful that we can do rather than spending lots of time thinking about ourselves and trying to work ourselves out. And it's this. We can learn to love God. Don't want, I wonder where my affection is. I wonder, is it this way, this way, this way? Learn to love God. It'll get fixed. Now, if you consider yourself a romantic here today, you won't like this suggestion at all. Because love is instinctive. Love can't be disciplined. Love just happens in a moment. I must be suggesting that you live some kind of fake it until you make it lie. That's not what I'm saying. If a married person here today didn't feel particularly in love with their spouse... We would not commend them for their honesty and integrity if they went after someone else instead. We would say, no, get back to your spouse and focus all your attention and affection on them. All the marriage books that you can read and all the elderly couples who make it onto the news when they celebrate like 50 or 60 years of marriage, they always, all of them talk about you've got to keep love alive. You've got to keep focused on the object of your affection. You've got to keep celebrating that person. You've got to keep making conscious choices again and again and again. It's not because you don't love them. It's because you do love them. And the more you do that, the more you will love them. This is great news for commitment folks. And for any here nervous about whether they might wander away from God, you can learn to love. You can learn to put one foot in front of the other and keep doing this in a given direction for the rest of your life. What makes Christianity so wonderful is that God knows you can't do this by yourself. He knows the state of your heart without him and how it actually just will find anything and lock on anything other than him. And so what Jesus comes to do is give us a new heart, give us a new life. Jesus talks about us being born again. It's that radical change. Our old life dies, and we get a new life in God, a new heart. The seat of our affections and decisions and affection is changed by God, actually changed by him. And this enables us to walk in a new way. 
to walk with him whatever's happening. 2 Peter 1 verse 3 says, his divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life. So if you want to walk this way, if you want to learn how to love this way, the promise of God is that if you ask him, he will give you all that you need. How should we do that? Well, if we go back to our passage, uh, Paul reminds Timothy about how to do this. He says two things. Firstly, he says, you, however, in contrast to the others, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings. In other words, Paul saying to Timothy, I have been your example. And we need examples because that's how we learn. Right from birth, we learn by copying. If babies haven't been smiled at, they won't smile. That's just just how it goes. But if they are smiled at, they learn to smile. And then when they learn to smile, they learn how great smiling is. And they look for other things that will make them smile. And so you go, this baby's faking it. No, it's learning and discovering the truth that's there for them. And so we need people that we can imitate. We never grow out of the need to imitate others. Christian leadership is about modelling how to follow Jesus. That's why we're always training and releasing leaders so that more people can do that. That's why I would love for many more of you to sign up for our Leadership Training Program Academy. Uh, We're opening a new intake for September. All the details are on the website and in the news email. If you're a leader, if you're influencing others, I want you to do that really well. So that as you grow, as you learn from others and imitate them, then more will learn from you and imitate you. So that's the first part of Paul's reminder. He says, copy me. And the second is, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed. In other words, make and keep godly habits. It's not very spectacular. In fact, it's almost the opposite of spectacular until you measure it in the decades. See, a moment of inspiration, a life-changing moment that we talk about can be amazing, can be really great. When God first grabbed hold of me, had a series of dramatic events that made me realise that he was real, that he loved me. Uh, It was incredible. And I would describe those and cherish them. I would say, that's a life-changing moment. And it kind of is because the direction I was facing at that point changed. But what kept me going in that direction? It wasn't a whole series of those events. It was small, daily, repetitious, unspectacular decisions. Life has got more complicated, but I love him more. How has that happened? A whole bunch of small things. Habits, godly habits, I've just formed and have become who I am. The first time I did them, it was like, well, this is new. The tenth time I did them, it was like, oh, I do seem to do this quite a lot now. Ten, fifteen years later, they're who I am. Day doesn't go by without me thanking God. Somehow or other, I've just made it a habit. I write it down. God, I want to thank you for this. And it just, that changes how I'm thinking. It realigns where my affection is. Money goes out of our bank account to his kingdom every month. I've got it set up so I don't even have to think about it. 
But Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So that's happening through the habit of giving. Read his word day by day. I ask him to give me eyes to see him. And the more we see of him, the more we love him. Sometimes, don't feel like I've seen him very much. Other times, it's incredible. It's a whole special effects going around. But always, I'm looking again at him. I'm turning my eyes again to him. When I sin, I confess it, and I turn away from it as quickly as possible and just learn to kind of reflex out of it. And stuff I used to be totally fine with, I now hate and can't go anywhere near. Because I've learned what to love and what not to love. Even just things like when I'm faced with small, inconsequential decisions, and I kind of feel like, I don't think either of these really matters which one I do, but I feel like God's maybe saying do that one. I just want to do that. Because I know that at other points there'll be bigger decisions and I want my instincts to be trained and my affection to be trained so that when I'm in those moments, however big or however small, I'm saying, God, I want to step after you now. I gather with God's people to worship him. I was inspired and thrilled with him in ways this morning that I could not have been if I had stayed at home by myself. All of these unspectacular things are demonstrations of my love that grow my love. Each one, every time, is another step in the right direction. There are other things that help reinforce and grow this, more dramatic moments. Next Saturday is going to be one of those. I'm looking forward so much to our missional church conference because we're going to be all together. God's going to be here in wonderful ways. We're going to hear speakers that we're not used to hearing speak, and they'll bring something fresh to us. We're going to be praying together. We're going to be eating together. It's going to be a great day. If you haven't signed up, get signed up. You don't want to miss it. I'm looking forward to that day as a really exciting moment. I'm looking forward to going down with a whole bunch of us in a coach to Ashburnham on the south coast of England uh, in August for another one of these big events because I know that that will stir up my faith. It will encourage me again. I'm going to go on a retreat that I go on with four uh, close friends who are also church leaders uh, just for a few days. I do that. We've done it every year for the past few years. Those are highlights. I love those moments. But they're in the same direction as all those little unspectacular daily decisions I make. The point is, is exactly that. Big or small, frequent or occasional, directing my affection. The same place, the same place, the same place. My affection is growing. If you want to explore this further, I really would recommend a book called You Are What You Love by James K.A. Smith, which I found really helpful for understanding this. He's from a different kind of church tradition, so some of the things he thinks a church should do, we're not going to do. But his presentation of the ideas and how it will stay to think about them is brilliant, really helpful. And it'll help you ask and answer this question. What steps do you need to take? What habits do you need to form that will form and firm up your love for God? There'll be nothing surprising in that list I gave you earlier because there's no secret. God's made it very plain. It's the doing of it that changes us. We're going to finish in just a moment. I want to speak to you particularly if you're not a Christian here today. I don't know what you love. I don't know uh, where you would say the direction of your life at present is heading, how you think it all works out, and how different that may be from what you've been hearing today. But I, want to, I just want to share with you, actually from that book, a real-life parable. 
In The Kingdom of Ice, uh, James Smith says, is Hampton Sides' compelling account of the failed 19th century polar expedition of the USS Jeannette, captained by Lieutenant George DeLong. It is a cautionary tale about the hazards of misorientation. DeLong's entire expedition rested on a picture of the then-unknown North Pole, laid out in the ultimately deluded maps of Dr. August Heinrich Petermann. Petermann's maps suggested a thermometric gateway through the ice that opened onto a vast polar sea on the top of the world. A fair-weather passage beyond all the ice. DeLong's entire expedition was staked on those maps. It quickly turned out that he was heading to a world that didn't exist. As perilous ice quickly surrounded the ship, Sides recounts the team had to shed its organising ideas in all their unfounded romance and to replace them with a reckoning of the Arctic the way it truly is. Smith goes on to say, Our culture often sells us faulty, fantastical maps of the good life that paint alluring pictures and draw us toward them. All too often we stake the expedition of our lives on them, setting sail toward them with every sheet hoisted, and we do so without thinking about it, because these maps work on our imagination, not our intellect. It's not until we're shipwrecked that we realise we trusted faulty maps. I wonder, have you noticed the ice around you? Have you noticed that what you thought was going to work isn't working and can't work? Is life not panning out as you thought it would, as you were promised? Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. As you walk towards him, as you turn to him, he will run to you. He gave us a story called The Prodigal Son so that you could know that for sure tells about the love of God, who's someone who walked and wandered far off from God, turned around and turned back, and God ran to him. God will change your life if you give it to him, and he will walk with you and teach you to follow him. And he will keep hold of you all the days of your life as you keep hold of him, like we've seen today. Let's pray and commit ourselves to doing that. Lord, I just want to thank you so much. As we heard earlier, your faithfulness is greater than our unfaithfulness. You are the great faithful one. And Lord, all of us here, consciously or unconsciously, have wandered away from you at times. And all of us here might. Why don't you just now ask God for mercy. Ask him for forgiveness. Ask him to bring you back to him. Tell him you're sorry for the other things that have attracted your heart. Those other things that have just, you've just gone off to them instead. Sometimes you've known it. Sometimes you haven't until today and suddenly it's become clear what's going on. To repent is to turn around, to turn away. When we say to God we're sorry, We say we want to follow him instead. This is what we mean.
Lord, by your wonderful Holy Spirit who grows our affection for God as we respond to you, would you please have your way among us now? And all this week, Lord, with the rest of today, and all this week and the months and years, decades to come, would we choose to follow you? Would we choose to orient our lives on you? Grow our love for you, Lord God. Fill our minds with you. Amen.